It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 104 of the Night Talker, we are scrapping our usual plans for an hour-long conversation with the legendary Aaron Franklin of Franklin Barbecue. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can follow me on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. How do you cook with smoke? There are a few people more qualified to answer that question than Aaron Franklin, the guy behind the world-famous Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas, and many other successful food-based business ventures. That includes, as the best-selling co-author of Franklin Barbecue and Franklin Steak, the third book to complete this trilogy came out a little earlier this summer and is titled Franklin Smoke, Wood, Fire, Smoke, and Aaron's nice enough to join me to talk about it throughout the course of this hour. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Ah, doing super good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So uh, why did you decide now is the time to uh, lay out everything you know about cooking with smoke? Well, you know, really, when, when Jordan and I did the first book, uh, Meat Smoking Manifesto, in 17. 17- I guess we wrote it in 14. I mean, it came out 16. Anywho, I don't know. My timelines are always a little off. Um, you know, everything is just a little little hazy back up in there. Um, you know, when, when we did the first book, we always kind of intended for it to perhaps be like a trilogy, even though the publisher had no idea. Uh, so it was like, you know, the first one was about the restaurant. The second one was kind of Jordan's, you know, passion project. He always wanted to do a book on steak and like a super deep dive on all that stuff. Uh, so of course we enjoyed working together so much, uh, you know, it was kind of a no brainer to do the steak book. And then we got through the steak book. I'm like, ah, maybe one day we'll do another one. Eh, probably not. We'll see what happens. And then the pandemic happened. So, you know, I realized that I was completely not essential at Franklin barbecue. Uh, <laughs> they don't need me. <laughs> no, they do a little bit, but not, not like it used to be. Um, but you know, Jordan and I both kind of went off on our, our individual paths during the pandemic. Uh, he started cooking a lot more at home, of course, cause everybody was grilling outside and staying far apart and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's sort of in the process this got me a little bit more excited than I had been in a while to cook with fire at home, because really, you know, we do when the restaurants are all running smoothly, we probably eat at home once every three months and actually cook. Like it's pretty you know, we just work, 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 work. And when you're cooking all the time at work, you don't really want to come home and do it again. So grilling at home really doesn't happen very often for us over here at the Franklin house. Um, but during the pandemic, we ended up cooking a lot and I was kind of doing a lot of online demos and stuff like that. And, you know, another little light bulb was like, oh my, my gosh, we should like, I'm getting excited about this stuff again, like fire pit cooking and all that stuff. So we decided to do a book about it. That's such an interesting element of doing something that you love for a living. Like I have seen this in sports radio. Like there are so many guys out there who would love to get to talk Texas Longhorns or whatever sport for a living. But it is also work at the end of the day. And there's also such a thing as oversaturating yourself with it to where you no longer enjoy it quite as much in your own personal life, too. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true. Almost all of my hobbies uh, have turned into a job in one shape or form. 
<laughs> so I got to find new hobbies. I got to got to find something new to do with myself. Man, one of the most impressive things about you, Aaron, it's not that you've gotten so good at so many different things. And we're certainly going to talk uh, about the uh, the smokers that you're now selling for homes, because I'm not going to lie. It's very tempting to get one of those as somebody who has no idea what I'm doing. I have a better idea because of this book now. The most impressive thing about you is not all the briskets or the successful businesses. It's your willingness to share your knowledge with other people. And you touch on that in this book just a little bit. It goes back to the Franklin Barbecue book where you literally lay out how you cook briskets. And as you mentioned, there are so many people who have thanked you over the years for helping to improve their abilities in doing so. We're in this strange world right now where everything seems so hyper competitive and people are so quick to hide what they know to keep others from being able to learn from that too. What is it that allows you to share such important, valuable information for free, even seemingly to the competition at times? Well, I think, you know, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. You know, there's like full transparency. Everybody's doing the same stuff. And for the most part, everyone is doing exactly the same thing. Like it's meat, salt, pepper and fire. Like it's that basic. But then you add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that. You know, so one thing that we realized doing Franklin Smoke uh, is how many years had gone by. And when we did, and for some reason, I never even thought about this. It, it seems like a total no brainer. Uh, but when we did the first book, that's what we were doing then. You know, it's like, oh, I'm cooking things like this. And then when I did the master class, that's what I was doing then. And then these people keep coming back. They're like, oh, well, you said this. I'm like, oh my God, that was like 10 years ago. I guess I've changed. I guess I've started doing some new things or, you know, you constantly evolve. So I think that's kind of cool to have these books um, you know, and like YouTube videos and stuff like that showing like different things because it does kind of mark a time in history, like what that person was doing. But, you know, there's that aspect of it. But then there's also, you know, if you were going to get like really just like super basic, like, well, this is what they're doing. The missing ingredients is always your hands. It's always the soul that goes into it. So you could totally give somebody exactly the recipe, like to the gram. And if it's technique driven like that, it's not going to turn out the same. It's just, that's just how it is. Everybody's got a different feel, a different touch. They think of different things. They look at things a little bit differently. They taste things a little bit differently. Um, so really, you know, putting out recipes and and putting something exactly how you do it, totally not worried about it. You know, it may not be what we're doing now. It may have been what we were doing then. It may have been something that I came up with that I was excited about, but it's all relative. And I think part of that is you just being a genuinely good person, too, who is looking to help others out. I don't well, I don't know. Maybe you're a serial murderer. Maybe you're uh, pitching up, picking up hitchhikers out in the uh, Bastrop area. And uh, we're going to find no, out about that. No, not anymore. Years. We gave up on that. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> no, but I loved uh, reading about this because I'm somebody who's uh, genuinely interested in like how people achieve success and some of the lessons that they learn along the way. But part of the way that you remain successful and good is keeping your eyes open and paying attention to maybe a slightly different way of doing something that you're already great at that may help your product improve too. And so it was cool to read in this book about you saying, yeah, I've ab ab absolutely had to evolve in terms of how I cook briskets over the years. And you laid out some of those new ways in this book. Is there one way that jumps out to you in your mind right now that you do? I don't know about drastically differently, but uh, differently in ways that may have surprised you from five or 10 years ago. Um, I think maybe, yeah, I think, you know, the, the skills that I've developed and, you know, and I will say like, if you're not always trying to get better, kind of what's the point? Like that's, that's not fun. 
It's like, oh, well, it's fine. I'll just leave it this way forever. Oh, my gosh, that sounds so boring. Like, I always want to, like, keep moving, you know, little light bulbs going off and, and stuff. But I think probably the biggest thing that I've learned and gotten better at and explored a little bit further is on, um, say, a brisket cook, you know, for example. And really, I guess it mainly applies to brisket anyway is by how to like gauge the cook, like when certain fats render at certain temperatures at certain times, how muscles kind of react to airflow, lack of airflow, cleaner smoke, you know, like all these different things. And then you start to layer that in on a 12, 13, 14 hour cook. And that I think is really kind of like next level, like brisket cooking, you know, and it all really goes back to the fire. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I don't treat fires any differently than I did then but somehow I just managed to haphazardly fall into a way that I thought was good to work fires where everything tasted cleaner, smelled better, moved faster. Um, you know, but that just comes with experience. The more you do it, the better you get at it. But if you're just, you know, like I, I think about when I started cooking barbecue and there was no internet and there were no <laughs> barbecue restaurants like there are now is a very different scene. But the old timer thing was just like, oh, I don't know, throw a log on it and shut the door and <laughs> it'll be morning. you know, like negative attention spent on details, you know, like throw a log on, shut the door. It's like, uh. so that's kind of what that was my that was my base level, uh, you know, and then I kind of worked up from there. But I think, you know, learning how to work the fires, which the smoke book talks about a lot. Manifesto talks about a lot. Masterclass talks about a lot. Like that's really the the main ingredient for all that stuff like sure you can put salt sure you can throw in garlic sure you can put in lowry's or steak seasoning or whatever the heck you want to put on on a piece of meat but at the end of the day that main ingredient is your fuel so when you learn how to work that fuel that's that's kind of when you get into the sweet spot is legendary pitmaster aaron franklin of franklin barbecue coming up we continue our conversation based around his new book franklin smoke it's the night talker with trey Elling. Proving good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellie. Back with legendary pitmaster Aaron Franklin of Franklin Barbecue. His new book, Franklin Smoke, Wood, Fire, Smoke, is out now. How interested were you in the scientific side of things when you first started? And if it really wasn't what, uh, at all, like what got you interested over time? I, I don't think I started cooking barbecue interested in that stuff. I mean, I'm always kind of like a little sciencey and I'm, yeah. I like to tinker and I like to build things. That's just kind of my normal default. Um, I guess paying even, close attention to like detailed measurements and timing and whatnot speaks to that well, too. And I don't know that I was that detailed really when I started cooking huh. barbecue, but when we opened up Franklin barbecue and I was cooking the stuff every day, day in, day out, you know, you start to notice little nuances and stuff. And I think that's when I got really uh super duper into detail stuff because i'm kind of like you know like i didn't i didn't have anything to base anything and no context at all mm. you know i mean the the thing that really got me started in barbecue was i called my dad uh asked me how to cook a brisket he's like i don't know just cook it till it's black it's probably tender <laughs> like that's pretty low down there <laughs> that's like the you straight know? up 1980s way to cook things like pete like, oh, i try to explain it to super... my kids i'm like you don't understand everything was burned or and all vegetables came out of cans back in the yeah, 1980s totally. but that's that was again that's kind of my base layer um but i think when we opened up the trailer and started 
cooking all the time, got into the restaurant and people thought it was good. So I was like, oh my God, we have to get better. We got to get better. So that's when I really started pushing myself to, you know, do better, do better, of course. Um, but it, I think it was an effort to make everything really, really consistent every day. And that's when I started being like, oh, well, I can't have this variable. Oh, well, I can't have this variable. Ooh, well, that smells a little different. What's going on? And that just opened up a huge can of worms and I haven't managed to close it yet. Hmm. Now, this book opens pretty emotionally. It uh, gives a detailed description of Franklin Barbecue catching fire back in the middle of a hurricane in 2017. I had forgotten those conditions, but you do a great job of just kind of recounting what happened and what you went through and helping to rebuild the restaurant. What sort of emotion did that evoke, you uh, you going over those details again? Um, I mean, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that stuff, but Jordan was asking about it and you know, maybe it takes a whiskey on the front porch, be like, oh, yeah, I forgot. And then this <laughs> happened. I forgot about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't too big of a deal. I mean, it, it, of course, it's our livelihood and, you know, it's it's our thing, you know. Um, but you can't really run a barbecue place with a lot of fires and not ever one day think that that might be a possibility. Right. Um, but when we did have a fire, and I will say it's really hard to believe you could build that big of a fire in the middle of a huge rainstorm. <laughs> there's water everywhere. <laughs> uh, but there's also a heck of a lot of wind. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think it, in my head, I, I kind of had a game plan a little bit, but also running a restaurant, you know, things break all the time. It's like 503 on a Friday, the ice machine's going to go out. You know, something, things always happen. And we're so good at just kind of, you know, flying by the seat of our pants in a lot of ways. Uh, that the fire was really just another thing to stack on. But so, it did allow me the chance to, uh, you know, update the building and renovate a lot of stuff while we were closed. So that was cool. Yeah. So thankfully nobody was, uh, was killed or even hurt in this fire. And the yeah, common thank phrase you. Is, Well, and that's really what makes it possible to even look back and be like, eh, it wasn't that bad, you know? Yeah. It's just so, so I can say this figuratively and literally that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So how did you come out stronger as a result of dealing with this uh, quasi tragedy. I mean, it was a very sad thing, but obviously you guys have come back bigger and better than f- before. Yeah, I think it kind of maybe helped me personally uh, a little bit because it gave me a little bit of a break. Hmm. You know, when you work 100, you know, 150 hours a week, um, you don't get much of a break. So it kind of gave me a little bit of time to reflect. And of course, it gave me, you know, some quiet time to work on the building and redo the front room while we were closed and stuff like that. But I think it maybe helped us get more organized uh, and just have maybe like a better perspective, like, eh, it's just a building, you know, nobody got hurt. You know, it, it's, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal, but it's at the same time, there's so many terrible things going on in this world, like a little restaurant catching, catching fire. Eh. We'll build it back. We're fine. That's a good attitude to take. I know I talked about you sharing the brisket recipe and you do share it again, as well as some of the tweaks you made over the years in Franklin's smoke. And near the start of this book, you talk about how you came to craft Franklin pit and why you do what you do and what makes this such a great home smoker versus some other options out there. What do you love most about Franklin pit? Uh, the thing that I really love about the Franklin pits is when you get to a smaller size cooker, it's really hard to get a crazy amount of airflow does make it a little bit harder to kind of, you know, work with. Um, 
But, you know, like you look at these big thousand gallon pits or 500 gallon size <laughs> pits and they've got an insane amount. Well, if they're designed well, they've got an insane amount of, of uh, airflow that goes through them. And that's really the trick to cooking a good brisket. You've got to get moisture in. You've got to dry out the surface just right. Lots of airflow in there to kind of get the heat to move around and stuff. Um, but you've also got to get that moisture and that air, that hot air out with a good smokestack. So I think it's really cool that the Franklin pit, we managed to design it, kind of scaled down from the big ones, designed from the inside out, lots of trial and error, uh, getting the intake and exhaust just right, because there aren't any dampers on there. Um, also, so it really just by design is meant to burn super clean, get clean flavors, get the sweetness, the transparency out of the smoke, water soluble particulate, you know, great brisket bark, all that stuff. It's really, I actually was just cooking on one this morning at the restaurant, uh, doing a little video shoot. And man, every time I fire one up, I just think it's the best cooker ever. And they're all exactly the same. I think so, that's really cool too. They're super duper consistent. So not to uh, Sophie's choice you here, but where does uh, the Franklin Pitt rank on your list of accomplishments? Because that's how crazy that you know. just I gave guess I don't right have there. a list of accomplishments that I've made. <laughs> I'm still trying to collect a few things before I start making a list. <laughs> that's fair. Love to hear it. So uh, Larry David uh, famously asked his wife, do you respect Wood before she divorced him uh, as she was considering taking him back? And uh, I know you respect Wood, Aaron, because I've read Franklin Smoke now. As a matter of fact, uh, your greatest respect in terms of the wood you use most regularly is... Post oak, which is commonly found here in these parts, obviously. Other than the accessibility, what do you love about cooking with post oak? Well, post oak's kind of a weird wood. Uh, if you think about like the classic Central Texas style barbecue and what flavors that is, that's coming from the wood. You know, if you think about different and you know, regionality of barbecue has changed a lot um, over the you know recent years. But if you think about like old school, like this area is hickory, this area is mesquite. You know, East Texas is maybe more pecan and you get into these different parts. Central Texas was always Central Texas post oak barbecue. Uh, thank goodness down here we have my favorite wood, uh, which is post oak, of course. But, you know, the cool thing about post oak and one of the there's a few different like things going on. There's like, you know, I forget how many different oaks out there, but like 60,000 some odd, you know, different oak trees. Um, but post oak is one of the ones with the least amount of tannic acid which helps it burn clean. So if you think about like charred barrels for whiskeys or like wine barrels and stuff like that, it uh, post oak has that in common with some of those oaks also, a very similar grain structure, really straight grain, which is why they made fence posts out of it. Another little fact, uh, they also made fence posts out of it, hence the name post oak, uh, because post oak rots from the outside in as opposed to almost all the other oaks that rot from the inside out. Uh, so that kind of gives you a hardier piece of wood in there most of the time. Uh, but yeah, it's just a really, really nice oak. Uh, it's a white oak and it's really mild and it burns clean. It can burn pretty hot. Um, doesn't have a ton of sugar, doesn't have a ton of tannic acid. So it doesn't put out a lot of off flavors. Um, and, you know, the at the restaurant and even on the backyard pits, um, the fireboxes are round. And so when you have straight firewood that's not all knobby or twisted or knots and stuff like that, it allows you to stack evenly across the bottom of the firebox so you can get airflow underneath, which also helps you burn a cleaner, faster fire. 
Sorry, I just heard you use this term a couple of times just now. I've heard tannic with regards to wine before, but never firewood. You said it's low in tannic acids. How do tannic acids affect the flavor that I guess comes from a, uh, a burning piece of wood that is being used to cook over fire or smoke? Yeah, so it's the the same thing as wine. You know, wine. There's tannins in in a uh, you know grape skins. There's tannins in the wood. If you're aging stuff, they kind of do their thing. Um, so, say for example, like red oak is really high in tannic acid, or mm-hmm. walnut is also. And you wouldn't cook with walnut necessarily, but if you were to burn it, it would be a really strong scent, and it might almost. Mm. Uh, be a little accurate or maybe just a little like uh like off-putting uh that a lot of times that's the tannins that are in the wood so when you get a lower you know you know tannin amount in the wood it does kind of help it get to a cleaner area a little bit quicker you don't have to age it quite as long also gotcha and just to clarify you said that post oak got its name because of what is essentially that classic barbed wire fence look where you have the barbed Mm -hmm. wire and the post going down that's almost always post oak huh yep that's right Interesting. Learn something new every day. You learn a lot when you talk to Aaron Franklin. Uh, you go over uh, <laughs> and a lot the, of useless information, too. He is legendary pitmaster Aaron Franklin. He, of course, is the guy responsible for Franklin Barbecue, the brand new Uptown Sports Club, that Franklin pit that we talked a little bit about rubs sauces and yes now a third book the first two are bestsellers the third one may very well be a bestseller at this point i apologize for not knowing that off the top of my head but coming up we continue our conversation based around franklin smoke next year on the night talker proving good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m it's the night talker with trey elling it's the night talker with trey elling Good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back with legendary pitmaster Aaron Franklin. He of Franklin Barbecue. In case you didn't know, he's also a best-selling author numerous times over. The newest book is actually the third in a series the first was Franklin Barbecue, then Franklin Steak, and now, as of earlier this summer, Franklin Smoke, Wood Fire Smoke. So you admit early in the pages of Franklin Smoke that while you hate eggs and cilantro, and I'm with you on the cilantro, by the way, I must have the gene yeah. where cilantro, it overwhelms the flavor of everything else. I need other really powerful flavors that I'm also not all that crazy about to even start to be okay with cilantro. I do like eggs, but like you and plenty of other people around, I love tacos too. Now hey, you've yeah. kind of gotten in the taco game a little bit with the uh, the truck that's outside of the barbecue restaurant, but uh, Uptown Sports Club is not not a taco place necessarily if you open another restaurant is it going to be a taco spot hey guess who's never going to open another restaurant this guy <laughs> i'm done you know i, I feel like guy. the last time we sm- spoke aaron and four or five years I ago you said that again <laughs> yeah you you i believe you said something similar at that time so yeah 
Gosh darn, I let myself down all the time. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I really wasn't looking to open anything. Uh, Uptown was is definitely never been about the food, but it really was about saving that old building because it's an old huh. building from the you know eighteen ninety early eighteen nineties. And I've been vacant forever, and Austin just doesn't have a lot of old, cool buildings. Uh, we're oh. so quick to tear things down. So, really, the the building kind of fell into our laps in a really organic way. And we're just like, well, what do we do with this building? Ah, save the clock tower. So it was it was really more about saving that place. Um, you know, building out a really really special place, and then the food was definitely. I don't want to say an afterthought, but we kind of had to let the building tell us what it wanted. Wouldn't didn't really have a game plan for food until, you know, probably a year after the building. And be like, well, I think it feels like this. It's got it's got plenty of New Orleansy vibes, um, and gumbo's always kind of been my liquid brisket. I've always had a pipe dream uh, to open a gumbo window, like you know Looney Tune style, where it's just a window on a huge brick wall. And it's like ah, gumbo, because uh, that's that's pretty much cartoons in my head. Um, but yeah, I kind of you know we kind of went into that and. French Brasserie meets Midwest Supper Club, meets a good bit of Bay Area, like Crab Louis and stuff like that, and Green Goddess dressing, and and uh, all through like a Texas-y kind of lens, because there is a ton of like barbecue crossover in there. There's brisket in the debris, gravy. There's, um, you know, our burgers. Uh, we have three burgers on the menu right now. Uh, we're probably going to stop there, but the burger patties are made with, you know, the brisket scraps and all that stuff. So it's Ooh. all it's all full circle. Is it a thinner or a thicker burger? It is. So the main one, the Uptown Burger, is a two patty, uh, and it's very rich, definitely shareable. Um, it's got aged white cheddar on it, uh, white American cheese, tons of aioli, Dijon, and uh, you know we make these super crazy good buns and stuff. And it's got two two four ounce patties, so that's Uptown Burger. So it's a more more of a griddle style patty. burger though, just two patties stacked on top of one another. Yep. Yep. Was really tart pickles, the same pickles we use at Franklin. Oh, love that. Now you're right that that the outside of that building looks like it belongs on the corner of Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. I'm curious though, what else has that building been in its 130 year history now? Man, it's been a lot of stuff. Uh, it was built to be a German butcher shop, which kind of struck a chord with me mm. being, uh, you know, a bit of a barbecue nerd. Um, yeah. So I thought that was really cool. We've got pictures. In, in fact, for this building, we've got a historical designation all the way up to the federal level, which really made it take a lot longer, but it was well wow. worth it, I think. Uh, but, you know, it was a German butcher shop. It was a German bakery for many, many years. It was an upholstery shop. Um, God, I think it was a tortilla place for a while. And then in the late 40s, I think 1949, uh, post-World War II kind of stuff, you know, um, it ended up turning into... I forget exactly what the name was, but I think it was Sports Club. And from mm. the late 40s all the way up until the early 90s when it finally closed permanently, it had always been some version with different owners of like Uptown Sports Club, Sports Club, Uptown Sports, Uptown Club, you know, some version of those. Uh, Uptown Sports Club is what it was named throughout the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s when it finally, you know, closed down. Uh, so we just kept the name. It's definitely not a sports bar. Uh, but that's what it was called, so so we're keeping it. Yeah, there aren't televisions in this restaurant, correct? We have two cathode ray televisions from garage sales up there. So you could go in there and watch a game, but they're oh. very small. <laughs> you just have but to squint and, squint and get really close. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's some sports to be had, I guess. That's uh, that's an important distinction to make for sure. Well, uh, congratulations on that, man. I can't wait to uh, to check that place out. Now, but getting back to the new book, Franklin Smoke, much like with your other books, you provide some incredible recipes throughout. I think my favorite from the previous book was the Salsa Verde, but there are a couple of things that I have my eye on in this one recipe-wise, Aaron. One is the red chimichurri. Now, I have to tell you, I make one of the world's greatest chimichurris. I've been told that by a lot of people over the last few years since I figured out how to reverse sear a steak. So the red chimichurri looks super interesting, and so does that whole Branzino. Man, it's one of my favorite things to order out when it's offered up on a menu at, say, a Mediterranean tapas-type place. Mm -hmm. But uh, what is it that you love about your whole Branzino recipe? Um, I love that it's really simple. Um, and also think Branzino really takes uh, grilled and smoky flavors really well. We tried a whole bunch of different fishes uh, and Branzino just always tastes cleaner. It accepts smoke really, really well. Uh, they're readily available and they're pretty inexpensive. So, I, you know, I think that's kind of the big thing. Like it's a smaller fish. So you could do one and share it or you could do a whole bunch of them and feed a bunch of people. Uh, so I think it's really versatile. Hmm. You also cover the idea of hot and fast brisket, which is cooking brisket in half the time that it would take otherwise. Are you a fan of brisket that has been cooked for six hours? No, I think it's uh, I think a lot of people claim that it, it can be like, oh, it's just as good. But really, in my opinion, it takes time to develop certain flavors and to layer things in. And it takes time to get you know, seam fat to render the same amount as your, you know, intermuscular fat versus your subcutaneous fat. It takes time to get the collagen to break down between the two muscles. Um, it just takes time, you know, and it takes time to get those layers in there. And sure, you can get a tender brisket in six hours, um, but I don't think it's going to be nearly as good as something that took a little bit longer. It's more likely to look a little bit more like something that Lincoln Riley showed on social media a few years ago, the former Oklahoma Sooners head football coach. I mean, it was a disaster what he put out there. But he hell was to pay, buddy. What's that? <laughs> hell to pay. Yeah. Oh, no. He, he still hears about that one to this day. Now, I did want to ask you a, a little bit about reverse searing because I've certainly played with it over time and i wanted to ask you one question about the slow cook before i ask about the fast cook because slow cook i think your recommended oven temperature was 200 degrees which is what i do for the most part but i've also gone up a little bit over time and that doesn't seem to ruin things too much maybe you adjust by an agree a degree or two in terms of what that internal temperature turns out to be but i'm wondering about how low you can go for the reverse sear to work have you tested that out at all to see if you can go down to I don't know, 180 or 170 for a meat that you're trying yeah. to get into that 125, 130 range? Yeah, I tend to like try to decide on on my like lower temperature of that thing by how big the meat is. Like if it's a huge mm. prime rib, you know, uh, of course you'll temper it on the counter because you don't want to put a cold piece of meat into an oven because you'll out you'll overcook the exterior while the inside's trying to get up to temp. So you want it to be as delicate as possible. But say for like a prime rib, if you tempered out of prime rib and it was, you know, for a couple hours and still perfectly safe, you know, working temperature. Um, and then you put it into a super low oven, it's going to take hours and hours and hours. So the thing that I'm always thinking about is how big is this piece of meat? How long is it going to take me to get it to where I want it to be? So that that's going to determine, 
if it's a super low temperature. Like if you're going to do a couple of filet mignons or something like that, maybe Chateaubriand or something like that, you could totally do like 160, 170. You could go really, really low because it's a small piece of meat and it's also going to conduct heat pretty quickly. It's just going to go through. You'll probably need to keep it moist because it might dry out because it is so small. But if you got like a Cote de Boeuf or like a big, you know, like a big prime rib or something like that, you're going to want to use more heat because you need to get it to a safe temperature quicker. Because you don't want to let something sit in there. I mean, you have a limited window for food safety. Yeah, no, you're right about that. But you also want it to not be too even of a cook, too, which I guess is why you maybe go a little bit higher. And the example that I think about is I like to reverse sear tomahawk pork chops, too. Yeah. Delicious yes, cut. It's like the perfect balance of fat and flesh for pork. But I have done it oven style where you throw it on a hot grill afterwards and i've also i didn't do this myself but it was done sous vide by my brother who is also a a really good home cook and he sous vide it and so the entire thing was that 140 temperatures i think what we took it to Mm -hmm. and the problem with that i would have got got a little lower Mm -hmm. so yes but and maybe this is this is about to speak to to the observation that i made the fat on the outside, which is part of what makes that such a great cut, was entirely too rubbery, but we would have had to leave it on there too long that would have led the flesh itself to end up overcooked had we given the fat its proper due on the grill. Yeah, that, is, that stuff gets a little tricky because when you, when you bag something and you cook it in an immersion circulator, there's no airflow, so it's just wet, and it's almost impossible to render that stuff when it's just like that wet. Huh. Um, and at 140... So that that might actually, man, this could be a very long-winded conversation. You know what? Hold that thought. This is going to be a little bit of a longer answer when we're up on a commercial break right now. He is the legendary pitmaster Aaron Franklin, responsible for, amongst other things, Franklin Barbecue. His new book that we're talking about all hour long is called Franklin Smoke. Get it now wherever books are sold. Coming up, one final segment with Aaron on the other side. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellie on 1027 ESPN and 1027ESPN.com. Final segment with legendary pitmaster Aaron Franklin. Conversation based around his new book, Franklin Smoke, Wood, Fire, Smoke. You can get it now wherever books are sold. And I need to reset my question about reverse searing, specifically reverse searing pork chops yeah no you're right about that but you also want it to not be too even of a cook too which i guess is why you maybe go a little bit higher and the example that i think about is i like to reverse sear tomahawk pork chops too yeah delicious cut it's like the perfect balance of fat and flesh 
for pork, but I have done it oven style where you throw it on a hot grill afterwards. And I've also, I didn't do this myself, but it was done sous vide by my brother, who is also a, a really good home cook. And he sous vide it. And so the entire thing was that 140 temperatures, I think, what we took it to. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that, yeah, Aaron, I lower. I would have got a little lower. Mm-hmm. So, yes, but... And maybe this is this is about to speak to to the observation that I made. The fat on the outside, which is part of what makes that such a great cut, was entirely too rubbery. But we would have had to leave it on there too long. That would have led the flesh itself to end up overcooked had we given the fat its proper due on the grill. Yeah, that is, that stuff gets a little tricky because when you when you bag something and you cook it in an immersion circulator, there's no airflow, so it's just wet. And it's almost impossible to render that stuff when it's just like that wet. Huh. Um, and at 140, so that that might actually, man, this could be a very long-winded conversation. Let's oh go. boy, let's go. Um, so if you think about like the the type of fat that's on that pork, you know, if you say on one end of the spectrum, you've got you know commodity pork that's fast growth, it's got a lot of subcutaneous fat, it's had growth hormones, all this kind of stuff. That fat's going to render at a much higher temperature hmm. than if you had, say, um, you know, a, a you know pork chop from a pig that's been eating acorns its whole life. It's got a lot of oleic acid in the fat, uh, and it's going to have a much lower rendering temperature. So if you've got like an Iberico chop, um, you know, you can almost take that fat and rub it between your fingers, and it just disappears like chapstick. Uh, versus, you know, like a grocery store low marbled, high subcutaneous fat, you know, like plumped up fast growth pig, those fats are gonna be night and day different. So that factors in, um, and if I was gonna sous vide something like that, you know, like a pork loin or, or whatever, I would really go out of my way to get a really, really nice piece of meat that was grown, you know, the right way, grown slowly, because those fats really do work out better. But those fats could render in the bag and give you a heck of a lot more flavor um, whereas something that has a higher melting point, um, you know, like more commodity kind of pork, you might just want to grill it or you might want like, you know, a hotter oven where you could crisp it up. Cause if you think about, you know, if you were going to crisp up something or like, you know, roll a, a pork belly or something like that, you might need like a 500, 600 degree oven to get that fat to where it needs to be. So I again, kind of, you know, I think it's kind of like collect the data a little bit and, and there's a thousand different ways to cook something, but you know there might be a method. And you're like, oh, this this is the way to go. This is the way. Do you have a favorite place to buy meats that you're cooking at home in town? Yeah, uh, here in town, uh, I like Salt and Time. Yeah, Friday Seventh. Yeah, that's a good spot. Uh, I I don't drive that far, but I do drive to the Central Market. Just the there's a huge difference in what HEB offers versus oh, what yeah. even Central Market well, offers. I, I buy a lot of stuff at Central Market. Um, I think they have a great meat counter. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, as far as uh, the way that you cook your briskets, I, I was reminded of this. I think I'd known it a while back, but you slather and rub your briskets, starting with French's yellow mustard, which my gosh, I mean, you talk about all time great condiments right there, but you put the French's on and then you put the salt and pepper on. Is that doable via a reverse sear? Is rubbing it with that French's mustard before I'm putting salt and pepper on the uh, the cut that I'm cooking? Yeah, well, so with the mustard, and we didn't start off doing it that way. We just kind of added that in a little bit. It really, the mustard doesn't do anything. It doesn't matter at all. You'll never taste it. But oh. all it does, 
um, is it makes the surface a little bit sticky so the seasoning can stick because you haven't yet had a chance to cook the, the meat, let the surface dry out. So when it does start to dry out and the, and the muscles start to shrink a little bit, that kind of just acts as a glue just to hold it on. Um, doesn't really do much for you though, flavor-wise. So I think, you know, if you were going to try to do like a reverse sear situation for like a big steak or maybe those pork chops or something like that, uh, perhaps dry brining might be your best method uh, where you can salt it, let it hang out, air dry in the refrigerator overnight. The salt will pull out the moisture and it'll reabsorb it, but then you have a dry surface so you can get a better Bayard reaction. Which is something that you do a great job of going over in Franklin Steak, too. All right, just a couple more questions, Aaron. Uh, Austin's food scene has obviously changed so much in the last 15-plus years, and you were at the forefront of that. How do you see the uh, the Austin food scene right now? Like, obviously, it's pretty healthy, but there are obvious pitfalls, too, in terms of workforce shortages and having to raise prices based on inflation happening elsewhere, too. Yeah, I think Austin right now has the best restaurants we've ever had. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we've, yeah, we, we've truly got some great food around here. But you're right. Uh, Austin's gotten so expensive that it's really hard um, it's kind of like the anti-Austin in a lot of ways. Because if you think about Austin, it used to be artists, musicians. You know, people could afford to live here. People could afford to be creative and have fun jobs and stuff. Um, but it has gotten really expensive. So I don't know. I, I don't think I have much to say about it. Um, you know, it's just kind of the evolution of, of pretty much every city. You know, as, and as things get more expensive, restaurants get more expensive, and they still operate on super-duper slim margins. I mean... Restaurants are hard. That's a very hard way to make a living. But when you do go out to dinner and your meal is pretty expensive, you you can't just think about like, oh, well, I could have cooked this at home. Like you could have cooked that at home, but you also didn't have to pay the utility bills for a restaurant. You didn't have to pay, you know, or want to pay a livable wage for all the people that, you know, delivered the food that you know, grew the food that made the food that prepped it that served it that made your cocktail that are going to stay late doing dishes that are going to scrub the floors late at night like you have to kind of factor in all that stuff and when you really do start to think about what all goes into a restaurant and it's not just that plate of food it's the whole experience it's kind of like you know we're talking about franklin barbecue it's the whole experience i mean that's like maybe a three or four hour experience that you're out there and people are handing you sunscreen because your forehead's getting red they're handing you a cold water because you look dehydrated like that's that's what you're getting with a meal so i i happily go out and spend a lot of money on restaurants um because it's fun eating out is fun like the old texas restaurant associated sticker eating out is fun oh i didn't know that sticker existed i'm gonna have to uh, oh yeah they were around they're still out there, but little stickers on restaurant doors like TRA eating out is fun. 1971. <laughs> it, well, it's especially fun when you're going to eat something that there's no way that you're going to be able to cook yourself. Like the obvious answers for you of your favorite places to eat in town or the, the places you spend so much time out. Obviously, Uptown Sports Club is a place that you do love to eat at. You were there last night. But taking your places out of the equation here, what is your favorite place to eat in Austin right now? Oh, golly. I love birdies. I think Birdie's is such a fabulous restaurant. Uh, Nick says on the list over also on 12. Yeah. Um, este, Suerte, of course, Uchiko is excellent yep. as is Uchi. Um, 
yeah, Kanji's at the top of the list. I mean, there's just so many, so many good restaurants. Cool. All right. Well, last question now, Aaron, and this is a bit of a silly question, but you've got a good sense of humor. I think there's a, there's a darkness there too, which is why I think that you'll, you'll give me a good answer to this question. Cause for a long time now I have uh, told uh, friends, family, listeners, that uh, if I were to know my death date, let's say, and I could figure out a way to preserve my rump, what I would want to do is I want, would want to preserve that rump while I was still alive and hire somebody like you, who is obviously really good at, at cooking meat, to cook uh, my rump roast for my own funeral, to serve it to people who come to mourn or celebrate my loss so that when they leave the memorial, they could leave with a little piece of meat inside of them. So if you were tasked to cooking my rump, how would you go about cooking Trey's rump roast? Well, that is a fabulous question. Thank you. Uh, I would poke a bunch of holes in there. I would lard it with garlic. Uh, I would dry brine it, 1.52% salt, let it air dry uh, for probably 24 or 30 hours, somewhere in there. And then I would take some tallow and a cast iron skillet and I would sear all the sides and I would deglaze the pan and kick off the liquid to the side um and then i would build that up with a veal stock lots of roasted bones uh and then i would braise that thing to tenderness uh reduce the braising stock and make a nice nice sauce see i knew we would have an answer for that he is aaron franklin you know who he is the new book is uh i can't recommend it enough it's just as good as the first two franklin smoke is what it's called wood fire smoke getting out wherever books are sold aaron thank you as always for the time man real pleasure of a conversation i hope we do it again soon absolutely great talking to you all right another show is in the books thank you so much for listening tonight We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and sweet dreams. Proving good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellen on 1027 ESPN and 1027ESPN.com.